Romans chapter 11 tonight, carrying on with our sermon series on Romans. Somebody asked me this morning at church, they were new to our church up in paradise. They were like, oh, have you been preaching Romans for a while? And I was like, you have no idea. <laughs> yes. So we're going to look at just the first six verses. I told Brian this week that I thought I wanted to do the first 16 verses of this chapter. And he said, are you sure? It's like, you're right, Brian. That's too much. That's too much. So we're just going to look at one through six. I'm going to ask if you would, if you are able to stand now for the reading of God's word. This is Romans 11, one through six. You'll see it up on the screen in your bulletin or best of all in your own Bible. God's word says this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here as we, as we think about and wrestle with this scripture, that all of it would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, in his name alone, amen. Amen, thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. Fishing with Paul is the title of this sermon today comes from this old phrase that I would imagine like at least 95% of you guys are familiar with, at least I hope so. So let's see if you can finish. Uh, if you teach, or excuse me, whoops, I messed it up already. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, what? You feed him for a lifetime. You didn't say that with much conviction, but it sounds like you got it, all right? You feed him for a lifetime. And so I, I was thinking about that phrase because this week I'm, I'm sitting in my sermon prep and study and I'm realizing that over the course of 20, 25 years now of me reading and studying the Bible, it seems to me that the Bible is constantly doing both of those things. It's both giving you the fish and teaching you how to fish in a metaphorical way. So there are times where you open up God's word and you read a promise that you needed just in that moment. You open up God's word and you read a, a, a rebuke or a challenge that you desperately, your heart needed to hear in that moment. Or maybe you read something new, a, a doctrine that helps you grow in your understanding of who God is and who you are. And it's like, that's giving you the fish. It's just what you needed for that moment. It's handing you the thing that feeds your soul. But there are also times when a fish isn't readily at hand, so to speak, when you're struggling with doubt or despair, when answers to your deep questions don't seem right at hand. And what the Bible does instead is it models for you 
what it looks like to walk through those times and those moments and to come out the other side trusting God. So that, in a sense, is not just giving you the fish. That's the teaching you how to. Now, there's obvious ways that the Bible teaches us how. In fact, it's usually when we're reading through the Gospels and Jesus will say things like, this is how to pray. (laughs) This is how to reconcile with your brother. And this is how to, you know, go about talking about if you've been offended. All these things that come up in Christian life, we're told sometimes just straightforward how to do it. But what I'm focusing on is gonna be a little bit different. What I wanna focus on is those places where we have to read between the lines a little bit and see Christian life modeled for us in ways that maybe we didn't expect to see when we began to read. The Psalms are wonderful for this. There's so many uh, just great memory verses in the Psalms, promises that many times are just giving you the fish that day that you started reading the Psalms. But then when you begin to look more closely, what you see is many times in the Psalms, what's being modeled for you is the psalmist showing what to do when you come up against something that maybe shakes you to the core. Many of my favorite psalms are the psalms where David or one of the other psalmists starts out by saying, Lord, I'm so desperately in need of you. Lord, why have you forsaken me? As a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. And what you get to see as a Bible reader is the process by which that writer works through those feelings of disillusionment and despair. He models that for us. Or how about David in Psalm 51 modeling for us what it looks like to truly come to God in real genuine repentance. He's been called out for his sin. It's been made public. And in Psalm 51, we get to see this broken man walking through being brought low, but then once again, trusting in the grace of God. He models that for us. He teaches us how to fish. I'm saying all this because I think those six verses that we read today, the exact same thing is going on. There are some definite fish that are given to us right away. Like I love that last verse when we read, you know, if the gospel was on the basis of works, grace would no longer be grace. That's a great phrase. It's one that hits you between the eyes. But the thing that popped out to me more than anything else in these six verses were As I sat with this this week, I got this feeling that I was getting to watch Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote this, work through some serious troubling questions. And I got to see his process of what it looks like to walk through those things, wrestling, striving with God, and then coming out on the other end with faith and hope and confidence. He modeled that for me while I studied this week. And that's what I want to share with you. In a way, he's teaching us how to fish when we come up against a question that shakes us to the core. So what I want to do today is three things. One, I want to talk about this question that has shaken Paul to the core, his unsettling question, so to speak. I want to tell us what that is. Um, It's not going to be a surprise to some of you because we've been talking about it for a little while here at church. 
last three chapters, actually, we've, he's been stirring on it. So it'll be a little bit of review for some. But then the other two things I want to do is basically say, what did he model for us and how to work through that process? What do we see him doing? What can we take from it and then apply to our own unsettling questions? That's the idea for this sermon in the next few minutes. So hope you can follow along with me. Let's start with the unsettling question for Paul. I think I have a slide for this. Actually, you can go ahead to the next one. That's a little leftover from an earlier one. There we go. Paul's unsettling cue. I loved, Pastor Brian slides last week, he put the Colosseum in this circle. I loved it so much, I stole it from him, shamelessly stole it. I pulled the senior pastor card. I was like, all right, Brian, this is where my authority comes in. I'm taking those slides. <laughs> infamous, there we go. That's why he said infamous. Touche, Brian, touche. So Paul's unsettling question did God reject his people? It's the very first thing that we read. I ask then, verse one says, has God rejected his people? The question of Israel has been what's driven all of these last few chapters. We looked at chapter nine, chapter 10, and Paul's saying, okay, Israel is the chosen people of God, God's covenant people. Why then have so few of them followed Jesus and embraced him as the Messiah, the hope of Israel? Why have God's chosen people seemingly just wholesale rejected Christ? What happened? And most unsettling of all, what does that say about God? Has God rejected his people? It might seem like that's just an academic question, just sort of a historical curiosity, like, oh, let's stroke our beards and think about why, you know, Israel hasn't accepted God like you would expect, but it's not just an academic question. It is, well, unsettling is the word I've been using. It's a question that Paul would not be addressing, not just to make a point like a lawyer winning a case. It's something that he would have felt in his bones, in his spirit. Because if the answer to the question is yes, that yes, God has rejected his people, do you know what that means? It means that God breaks his promises, that God's not faithful, that he's not reliable and trustworthy when he says that he'll do something. All throughout the Old Testament, God is repeatedly telling his people Israel, you are my people, I'm your God. I'll never forsake you. So Paul's saying, if it's true that he's rejected them, then he doesn't keep his promises. And that matters for all whether old covenant believers or new covenant believers, it means that you can't trust God's promises either. All of those beautiful things that we read about in Romans 8, what's to keep God from just deciding that he's gonna throw them out the window if it's not convenient anymore? This question of has God rejected his people, it is deep, it is unsettling, it is troubling. And I really believe that Paul here is not speaking about it purely from an academic level. He's speaking about it as someone who has wrestled deeply with this himself. It's perhaps why he spends so much time in the letter talking about it. Of course, though, he doesn't leave us in suspense for long. In fact, right after he asks that opening question, he gives us that very Paul-like rejection I asked then in verse one, has God rejected his people? 
by no means. Uh, This is going way back, but I preached a sermon about that phrase, by no means. It pops up in Romans multiple times, and it basically, in Greek, is the most emphatic, passionate, strongest denial you can get. Absolutely not. Or I think in the sermon I talked about it, I said it was the Greek version of no way, Jose. So, and that comes from a friend of mine in seminary, um, if you recall that story. He says, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. So Paul doesn't leave us in suspense about that question. He's gotten to a good landing place with it. But I want to see now how he got there. I want to see what he models for us as people of God that oftentimes are needing to wrestle with these questions. And I want to be able to apply that to my own unsettling questions. So let's take a look. Here's the first thing I see modeled for us. I think it's up here on the next slide. He models for us a look inward. So the first thing he says right after by no means is this, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Or I've got it uh, highlighted up here. Let's just look at the very first part. For I myself when confronted with this question about God's faithfulness and whether we can trust him or not, the first thing Paul does is to look inward, to consider himself, to consider who he is, and most importantly, to consider what God has done for him and what God has done in him. That is what I see being modeled here in these verses, a look inward. Now, before we get too abstract, let me talk about the specifics of what Paul actually says. He, he looks inward, and what does he find? I, I read it a second ago. He says, I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a.k.a. I'm as Jewish as you can possibly get. I'm an Israelite. I'm one of God's covenant people, and yet here I am standing in the light of the gospel. So if you want proof that God has not rejected his covenant people, look at me, Paul is saying. Don't I count for this? I'm an Israelite and God has had mercy on me. I was struck by that because what it means is that Paul, he's not starting by trying to answer the question of God's faithfulness by looking at all the statistics outside of him or the the Gallup polls, you know. Nine out of 10 Israelites don't follow Jesus. He's not looking at that and basing his conclusions on that. He starts by saying there is evidence that's more primary than any of the statistics or the generalizations. It's what God has done in my life, my testimony, my experience of his faithfulness. And before I look out there, I'm going to look here to see what my life says about the character of God. And if the question is, has God rejected his people? I myself am evidence that he has not. Now I told you, he's he's teaching us here uh, how to go about these unsettling questions that are gonna be different for each and every one of us. You probably don't have as your unsettling question Uh, the question of Israel. Maybe you do. That wouldn't be a bad one. But perhaps your unsettling question is something different. 
about the existence of God or about why it is that it seems like God does not hear your prayers or answer them. Or maybe it's a question about why the church is so full of people that can be hateful and jealous and gossipy. Maybe you had a terrible experience in church and you're saying, God, is this really your people? Or maybe it's a sin that you continue to trip up in and fall on your face with over and over and over and again, and you say, what is going on? I don't know what your unsettling question might be, but what I do know is that what you can take from Paul here is that as you begin to wrestle with these things, don't overlook your testimony and what God has done in your very own heart. You're struggling with the existence of God. Okay, you wanna go read books on that. You wanna go watch documentaries. You wanna talk to somebody that's an expert or attend lectures. All of those things are great, but none of them are as powerful as that first look inward to say, what has God done for me? How does my life testify about his existence and the fact that he is here and he is not silent? What is my, the answers to prayer that I can remember in my history say about his presence and existence? Don't neglect that. If any of you guys are uh, glasses wearers like me, you might've had the experience that's happened to me sadly a few times of walking around the house in the morning, getting ready to leave, looking for your glasses, only to discover that you're wearing them. It's been, I've done that for longer than I'd like to expect. Not just like, oh, it was 15 seconds. No, let's talk minutes here. <laughs> it's the most resounding amen I've got all night. I like it. Sometimes the most powerful evidence you have is right under your nose. It's like the glasses on your face. Don't overlook who you are or more accurately, what God has done for you when it comes to these unsettling questions that you might be wrestling with. The look inward is what I see modeled here. Now, of course, I told you there was two things that I wanted to see, and the second one, uh, it runs the risk of perhaps uh, sounding like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth and totally contradicting what I just said. But now that we talked about looking inward, I wanna see in Paul's process here, him looking outward too. I know that seems to clash, but here on the next one, his realization is that it's bigger than just him, or to put it in the first person, it's bigger than me. So I know that doesn't make any sense right now, but it will hopefully in a second as we read verse two. Um, actually, let's read verse two and three and four. We're gonna read a lot here. It says this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, 
So the, the most obvious application in this little section right here is the fact that Paul, when he's wrestling with this question, he turns to the scriptures, right? That story of Elijah, it's coming from the book of 1 Kings. He knows his Bible and he's able to kind of take his thoughts and his mind there. So that's important. I don't want to miss that. However, the thing I want to focus on is a little bit different, maybe a little more hidden. And it's, well, what we said earlier, that Paul is realizing that it's bigger than just his perspective. God's work is bigger than what he can see. It's bigger than what he can observe. And God is doing things in the world that Paul might not be privy to and might never be. And so he's able to come to his question about Israel and say, you know what? It appears to me that very few of the Israelites have followed Jesus as the Messiah. But what appears to me might not be indicative of all that there is and all that God is doing. That's very important. So the story of Elijah is an interesting one. It's one of my favorites, and I am so glad that Paul chose to use this one in this section of the letter. Because Elijah is a prophet of the Lord, and he's, man, he's pretty awesome. <laughs> not going to mince words here. If he was here, he'd probably be like, no, God is awesome. I'm not awesome. Yes, Elijah, I get that. So Elijah, at one point, he's by himself, and he's in this standoff between, hundred, uh, between himself and hundreds of these prophets of the false god Baal. There's a lot of them. And they're singing and dancing and doing their chanting, all asking for Baal to show up in these amazing ways, and he doesn't at all. In fact, Elijah starts teasing him because of it. And this is why I say he's a rock star, is because he tells him at one point, he's like, oh, maybe Baal's in the bathroom and he can't come right now. <laughs> so Elijah, after his teasing, after they just exhaust themselves trying to get Baal to show up, he basically makes this altar just soaking wet and then God rains down fire upon it and consumes the sacrifice even though it's soaking wet. And it's just this amazing, just jaw-dropping evidence of God's glory and power and might. But what happens next is that Elijah has to go on the run for his life because that show that he put on, uh, it put a price on his head basically. And now the wicked queen Jezebel is after him and Elijah has to go into hiding. And while he's in hiding, he's in this place of despair and he's speaking to God in this really personal moment. And he says what we have quoted in our text here. I'll read it for her once again. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Elijah basically is saying here, God, all is lost. All your prophets are dead. All your places of worship are done. I'm the only one left and I'm hiding in a cave. It's done, game over. God's reply to him though, which is also quoted in our text, I'm gonna paraphrase it. God says to Elijah, oh Elijah, if you only realize that what I am doing is bigger than just your experience. That 
what I am at work in is bigger than what you can see or observe. And although it might seem to you like you were the only one left, that all hope dies with you, the reality is that by my grace, I have preserved thousands who have not bowed the knee to the false god Baal. You ain't the only one, Elijah. And all is certainly not lost. So Paul takes that rationale and he applies it to his own question. And he puts himself in the shoes of Elijah, so to speak. And he's like, God, Jesus has arrived. The Messiah is here and everybody has rejected him. All your people have said, nope. And in fact, I go around spreading the gospel and they try to kill me and they try to imprison any of those that follow Jesus and they're trying to snuff it out. I'm all that there is and it doesn't look good for us. And God's response to Paul would be very similar to what he said to Elijah. Paul imagines him saying in just the same way, oh Paul, if you only realized that your experience does not limit what I can do in the world. That what you see doesn't capture all that is going on, all that I'm at work in. And don't you know, Paul, that there are thousands that you'll never meet, thousands that you'll never see, that I am opening their eyes up to the gospel even now so that there is a remnant a strong remnant saved by grace that cannot be shaken. It's not just you, Paul. And all is certainly not lost. He realizes through this story about Elijah that it's bigger than just him. And, and, and guys, I, I said this up in paradise this morning. It kind of struck me that, you know, it's bigger than you is very similar. Remember the way Rick Warren started the Purpose Driven Life all those years ago, it's, it's not about you. And that was the saying of like, oh yeah, the world doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't exist to make much of me. It was a very important teaching and very good. What I'm trying to capture is a little different than that though. And that not just it's not all about you, but that your perspective isn't the entire universe. What you can see, what you can hear, what you experience in your 75, 80 years of life is not the extent of the entire cosmos. And it's weird because you say that and it's like, of course, that's very obvious, but most of us live our lives as if that is the case. Did y'all know that you are supporting characters in my movie? <laughs> Did you know that? I'm the hero of the film and you guys are just, you're the supporting cast, you do great. You're gonna win an Oscar for it, you've done awesome. Guess what, I'm a supporting character in Al Gage's movie. And it's those humbling times where we can step back and be like, wait a second, my observations are not all there is and they definitely aren't the final word on what God's doing in the world. When you begin to see that, to know that, to understand that like Paul landed on here, maybe then you're able to wrestle with some of your questions in a much more healthy and liberating way. For instance, somebody that right now is in a town, maybe in our country or maybe across the world, that's seen the last Bible-believing church close their doors. 
and they cry out to God and say, that's it. It's done. There are no more churches that preach the gospel. I'm the only person that cares about this that's left in our town. And God says, do you not know? I am at work in ways that you can't see, whether it's gonna be your neighbors around you or whether it's gonna be faithfulness down the road in the future, all is not lost. Or maybe they come back to one of the questions we mentioned earlier, somebody that their entire experience of church has been awfulness. People that have done terrible things and sinned against them. They say, God, is this it? Is this all the church is, is a bunch of hypocrites and people that hurt one another? That's what it seems like to me. And God says, don't you know, there are thousands of believers around the world that are bearing the fruit of the spirit. What you've experienced, as hard as it is, and as much as we grieve that, is not the end all be all of what the church is. Or my last example is the one I was most scared to share, but I think I need to say it. Election day is coming up in a few weeks. In our country and in many countries around the world, there are many that are thinking that the future of the kingdom of God and the hope of the gospel is contingent on what the outcome of the election is. And it's not. We say, God, this is it. These godless rulers are coming into power and all is lost. Our country is gonna be godless. The light of the gospel is gonna be snuffed out. And God says, do you not know? I am bringing revival in places you never would have guessed it. I am raising up believers in country where it's illegal to be a Christian. The church will be strong deep into the future. The gospel will go forth unhindered and untamed. And I was scared to say that because I knew there would be some that hear that and see like, Josh is just, he's just one of those preachers that doesn't care about our country. And he's not fighting the good fight of, of standing up as a citizen with the people that died for our country. I hope that's not what you think of me. Even just a few nights ago, I was helping MC the CareNet banquet and I gave a desperate plea for people to be active in the voting process this particular election cycle because of some of the propositions that are coming up. I pray for our country. I desperately want to see God honored in our education system, in our courts. But I also know that the future of the gospel is not tied to any one country or any one state or any one county. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than my state. It's bigger than just one country. And every time I wanna tie together our politics with the future of the gospel, I can hear God saying to me, just like he did to Elijah, son, do you not know that I am working and doing things in ways that are bigger than your perception and your experience? These unsettling questions we have, sometimes the best medicine for them is to step back from ourselves and realize that we aren't the end all be all of what we're seeing. This section of scripture, like I said, I think is giving us the fish and teaching us the fish. It has in it some beautiful statements about what grace is, 
beautiful statements about the remnant that God has chosen by grace. And we're going to see in the weeks to come that that remnant is going to play a big part in a future explosion of evangelism. But not only does it give us those fish, it teaches us what to do when that fish isn't readily at hand. When we're struggling, when we're doubting, when we're wrestling with the same kinds of questions we see Apostle Paul doing so here. We're seeing in this scripture what it looks like for us to walk through that and come out on the other side. A look inward to our testimonies and a look outward to know that it's bigger than what I can see. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us. Lord, help us as we wrestle and strive and ask these questions that I know that many of us have. They're not all the same ones. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of what you've given us, your word, our testimony, our experience of your faithfulness, and also that humbling spirit to know that there is more going on that's beyond what we can see. Lord, teach us that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.